Good morning. Good morning. We had a little, little debate, little controversy. Does gravy count as a side? Because it makes everything better, right? I mean, you're putting it on. Uh, even if you don't, I love how Aaron just assumed that everybody eats turkey. Like, no, tofurkey, right? Tofu turkey, nobody. Any vegetarians out there, we still love you. Like, we, this is a church... Nobody raised their hand. So maybe they're like, I don't want it. He just said everybody eats turkey. I'm going to a different church. Uh, what a fun little thing. I was really contemplating that one. I don't know about you. Like I, had, I, I totally lost the sermon. I don't know what it's about because all I've been thinking about is what is the side that I should, should tell somebody that I'm going to eat. Now, man, I'm looking forward to it. I'm going to smoke a turkey. I mean, like in a smoker. Okay, I don't want you to be like, what is this church all about here? No, 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 no. No, I'm going to, in the smoker, it's going to be really fun. I'm very, very excited about that. You know, something that used to make me really excited, on a totally another note, when I was a kid, when I was a student, wasn't necessarily a great student. I tried really hard, so that was kind of, that was my go-to. Like, I'm just going to try really, really hard. Um, one of the things that would really excite me is when the teacher would reveal Maybe like a day or two before the test or maybe after the test. That was also a very relieving moment. When the teacher would say, all right, we're going to grade this on a curve. I'd be like, yes. Right? All the dyslexic kids in the back of the class would be like, thank God. Right? Because when you hear that, like maybe you don't know what that phrase means. Because maybe you were the kid who always set the curve. So just want you to know everybody in the class hated you. So just going to put that out there. You can work through that in therapy later. But the curve meant like instead of you being graded against 100%, right, you were graded against the highest score. So if somebody got, say, a 94, that became the highest score. So your grade was based off your difference between 94, not 100. So that usually meant if the test was harder, it was graded easier. So maybe you got a B now maybe that moved to like an A minus. I used to love to hear that phrase. All right, today we're going to grade on a curve. Or after looking at the exams, I realized I'm a terrible teacher because none of you did well. Did your teacher ever say that? Mine never said that. But okay, so I'm, we're going to grade on a curve. And that relief, right, that anxiety would just dissipate. It was so nice. I think at times we kind of take that same principle and apply it spiritually. Right, that, that God's going to grade on a curve. That like, there's a, like this moral high score that humanity can offer. And so God is going to grade on a curve. We kind of betray ourselves for that we have that thinking when we say phrases like, well, I'm not as bad as that guy. Right? Or I do more good than my husband. That is probably true for most women who have a husband. But... Right, that, that comparison game, we play that. Well, I, I, I'm not as bad as that person, or I do more good than that person. We could do that same thing when it comes to our devotion to Jesus. We could say, you know, I'm more devoted to Jesus than this person. Right? There's a scale. There's a scale. There's, there's people on the far end of the scale that, that hate Jesus. I mean, those people do exist. They are just opposed to the things of Jesus. They hate Jesus. The name of Jesus angers them. They don't like Jesus. Then there are people on the other end of the scale that they're fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Like they love Jesus, they love his teachings, and their aim of their life is to follow what Jesus said. Now, again, like there's a scale. There's like the haters way over there, the fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ over here. But then you kind of have this kind of middle ground where, where Jesus would get like a thumbs up or a like. 
But some of his teaching is seen like, wow, that's kind of severe. Or that's a little too much. Or Jesus, that's a little outdated. Like those standards are a little archaic. And so I'm not going to follow that portion, Jesus. I'll, I'll admire you as a good moral teacher. You started revolution. You, you, you moved things uh, socially. You allowed us to progress and be better. But we've kind of moved past you, Jesus. So my question is, does God kind of grade on a scale? Like is God looking at this group and saying, well, you know, they're better than the haters. So you're good with me. Well, God is not like... Those teachers that used to give me great relief and great excitement when they said they would grade on a curve. God doesn't grade on a curve. There's only one response that God is looking for. And even though there's a scale, and those over here who would admire Jesus and not hate Jesus, God is not going to look at that differently when it comes to the afterlife. So if you're on to one thing, I want you to write this down. The big idea for today is this. God does not grade on a curve but on the cross. We are not graded on a curve, but on the cross. God on judgment day is not going to say, well, you're better than this guy, so you're good with me. Or, hey, you didn't hate my son, so you're good with me. What we are judged on is the cross. What was our response to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins? Did we place our faith in the cross work of Jesus Christ? That that was the only means for our sins to be forgiven and our relationship with God to be restored. For our brokenness to be mended. We will be judged based on the cross. And that faith in the cross work of Jesus Christ is a faith that is transformative. And we're going to unpack that this morning. It's transformative. What I mean by that, it's not just a moment, but it's a moment that starts a marathon. Faith transforms us and makes us faithful. And we're going to see a story that Jesus is going to tell in Luke chapter 19. And Jesus is going to present to us kind of this scale. He's going to speak to a group that is really opposed to him. The haters. He's going to speak to a group that's faithful to his commands. And then he's going to speak of another group that is, well, somewhat aligned with Jesus. Somehow connected with Jesus, but not faithful. And what we're going to see is Jesus is going to show the line that he draws is one of faith and faithfulness. And that's where we'll be judged. That it's not enough to be better than the haters. It's not enough to step a little further on that scale. The afterlife will be judged based on our response to the cross of Jesus Christ. A true faith that leads to lasting faithfulness. So let me show you this in Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. Jesus is going to start this story. And I love this because Luke kind of gives us the context or the, the environment in which this story kind of pops up. It's a longer story. You may be familiar if you've read the Bible maybe several times. You may be familiar with the story. But you might be thinking of Matthew's version of this story or Matthew's record of Jesus' parable. Luke records this parable. And Jesus probably told this parable in several different ways. And so he probably had this story as an idea and said, okay, I'm going to apply this story in this context. I'm going to apply this story in this talk context. So he would change a little bit of the elements. So the, the story I always remember is Matthew's recording of this story, the story of the uh, parable of the talents. Well, here it's a little different. 
He tells the story just slightly differently, and I think the reason is is because the setting. He's trying to make a point to a specific group. So let's look at that point, or the look at that group. This is Luke chapter 19. I'm going to start with verse 11. So as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable, a story with a point. Because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So right there we get the context of the story. The disciples are with Jesus heading towards Jerusalem. Jesus is on a mission. He's going to Jerusalem for a Black Friday sale. He's got to get there get the big screen TV. No. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. Why? To die and to rise. To do the cross work. To die for the sins of humanity. To rise again and to give them the victory of the forgiveness of sins and a restoration of their relationship with God. He's on a mission. And the disciples are nearing Jerusalem with him. Now, with that, the disciples are thinking, hey, is Jesus going to bring in the kingdom fully? Like, are we going to Jerusalem and then, man, God's just coming. God's kingdom will fully be on this earth. They're wondering, is the end near? That's what they're thinking in their mind. And so Jesus knows this. Now Jesus has talked about how the kingdom of God, that's God's rule and God's reign. How God's kingdom is breaking into human history in his ministry. But Jesus also talked about, yes, it's breaking in, but it's not yet fully realized. This is what we call in, in kind of New Testament language, we call it the already Not yet. The kingdom of God is already here, but it's not yet fully here. It's breaking into human history, but it's not yet fully manifested. That day is coming later in Jesus' second coming, his return after his ascension. So Jesus is going to tell a story to tell them, hey guys, you're going to have to wait. Yes, I'm going to Jerusalem to do the cross work, to die and to rise. But then I'm going to ascend after that, and I'm going to go and, and, and be with my father. But then I'm coming back to bring the kingdom fully. And there's going to be a gap, and you're going to have to wait for me. So here's what I want you to do while you wait. Be faithful. Be faithful. And this is this, what Jesus is encouraging in this story. Okay, let, let me show you how this kind of plays out. Because Jesus is going to give us kind of three attitudes or three responses. What are people going to do while they wait for me? After I die and rise, ascend to the Father, before I come again, when this gap, how are people going to respond to me? And this is where Jesus is going to show there's kind of a scaled response to him. Look at the first group. The first group is, is the haters. Verse 12. And he, said, and he said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Okay, we could stop right there and say, who is the nobleman in this story? Jesus is. Right? This nobleman was going to receive a kingdom, going to a foreign land, it was going to return. That's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is going to Jerusalem to receive a kingship, a kingdom. In his work on the cross, Christ would receive a kingdom. He would ascend, be victorious, and that is his kingship, his kind of crowning moment. So Jesus is talking about himself. He is the nobleman in this story. Now, look at how it describes those who were about to be ruled by this king. 
Sorry, verse 13. And calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas or minas. And he said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. So this nobleman is kind of in his land. He has these servants and he invests in them money. He says, I want you to be good stewards of this. I want you to be faithful until I come back. But I'm going off to this foreign land to receive this kingship. And the people there hate him. Like they hear that he's coming and they send out a delegation. We don't want him. Right? Not our king. We don't want him. No, thank you. Now, did Jesus ever experience hostility in his ministry? Yes. Significant hostility. He's going to go to Jerusalem and be crucified by those who hate him. And even now, does Jesus... Face that kind of opposition in our modern world? Yes. Are there people who hate Jesus? Yes. Now, in my opinion, now I don't know everybody in the world, but my opinion is that group is probably small. That's not the majority group of people who are just actively opposed to everything that Jesus is about. I, I don't think that. And what's interesting in this story is Jesus is not going to spend very much time talking about these guys. He talks about them here, and at the very end of our story, he'll bring it up again. But the rest of the story is not about these haters. It's not about that response. It's not about the far end extreme. Jesus spent majority of his time actually talking about the middle. Those who kind of are connected to Jesus, maybe admire Jesus, but do think that some of his commands are a little severe. Or they're too strict. They misconstrue the character of Jesus. They don't see him as generous and kind and loving. They kind of see him as outdated. They see him as kind of archaic. That's who Jesus is going to spend the majority of his time with. But before we get to that one, he's going to actually talk about a different character. The faithful servants. Those who've been entrusted with money in this story. Okay, so let's keep going with them. Let's move past the hater group. Verse 14, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. And when he returned, having received the kingdom, so he was able to overcome that opposition, he ordered these servants to whom he had given money to be called to him that they might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful and very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. Okay, let's just stop here for a moment. This is the employer I want to work with. Okay? A mina was about four months or so of, of wages for the average laborer. So that's a, that's a good portion. If your employer came to you and said, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm investing four months of capital in you. I want you to steward it. I want you to invest. I want you to take care of this. I want you to manage it. And I want to see a return when I come back. And this servant gives a pretty significant return. Tenfold? Okay, this guy nailed his quarterly goals. Right? And then, what's his bonus? This guy just starts handing out cities. He's like, what do you want? Seattle? You're like, no, I'm good. (laughs) Portland? No, I'll pass. (laughs) Right? I mean, he's handing over this authority. What is, 
this tells us something, and we need, it, we need to capture this because we've got to remember this. Because when we get to the unfaithful servant, this is a note that's very, very important. This master is generous. This is a nice guy. You want to work for this guy. Imagine if your boss gave you this kind of bonus for your quarterly performance. You'd want to work there. The next servant performs a little less. In fact, significantly less. I mean, the other guy turned one into ten. The next guy is going to turn one into five. That's a pretty big return. And the master is generous. Look what he says. To the faithful one who was able to get a five-fold return on the master's investment. Verse 18. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has, been, has made five minas. And he said to him, you are to be over five cities. Now what does this again tell us about the master? He's generous. And he's not expecting the same thing from everyone. Do you see that? He gave the same amount of money to each one. See, this is why it's a little different than, than the, the, the parable of the, the talents in the gospel of Matthew. Is there we see the investments are different. It's like one and two and five. This is different. Here we have just one. He gave them one kind of lump sum, all equal, same amount. And they return a different investment. And the guy who puts one to five, the master isn't like, well, what were you doing? Why didn't you perform like Chuck over here? And he doubled what you did. No. He says, great job, man. I got some cities for you. San Diego? How do you feel? Like, do you like the sun? Huh? San Francisco? What, what do you want? You pick the city. A very generous master. And a master who's not so demanding that he always wants this just extravagant return on his investment. Now that's going to become even clearer when we get to the un faithful servant because the unfaithful servant is going to see the master very differently very differently and so these experiences that are happening these rewards these extravagant rewards for faithfulness we have to keep that in mind because the response of the unfaithful servant will almost sound like he is talking about an entirely different master now now before we get there before we get to that servant I think it's important for us to, to realize that these servants who are faithful, the reason they're faithful is because they had true faith. The New Testament teaching, when it talks about a, a faithful servant uh, uh, serving the Lord Jesus Christ for the term of their life, it's not talking about perfection. We've got to remember that. It's not what it's talking about. Just read through the Bible. None of the followers of Jesus are perfect. It's a laundry list of imperfections. But there's a sense of devotion. There's a sense of confession when wrong is done. But these servants right here are demonstrating faithfulness and good stewardship. And why are they able to do that? It's because they love and know their master. They're displaying true faith. And this is very important for us to remember because we can summarize the New Testament kind of teaching on faith and faithfulness or faith and obedience this way. True faith. Leads to lasting faithfulness. Let me show you this. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. Look at how John describes the connection between faith and faithfulness. Now he uses different words, but very similar. Okay, verse 3 says, And by this we know that we have come to know him. 
Now, John is not talking about something about knowledge or information. I know who Jesus is. It's not. If we look at the context of 1 John, we see that knowing means loving. It's a commitment. It's an acknowledgement. These are the things that happen, and I'm entrusting myself to you. How do I know I've truly come to know who Jesus is? That I've truly come to place my faith in Jesus Christ? It's a very simple formula. What does he say at the end? If you keep his, what? Commandments. If you just think of a marriage analogy, how do you know that someone truly said, I do? They honor that vow. They do what they said they would do. And they don't do what they committed not to do. They're faithful. How do I know that declaration, that moment is real? It's because the lasting fidelity displayed in your marriage. How do we know we've come to know who Jesus Christ is? We obey his commands. True faith leads to lasting faithfulness. And that's what these servants are showing. Now, if we stop there, if we stop the story there, here's what it seems to be the responses of Jesus. Either you're faithful to him or you hate him. Like there's only two. But there's not two. There's a scale. There's a scale. Now the hard part is, even though there's a scale, there is no curve. God is not graving on a curve. Even though we may be one step away from hatred or, or maybe three or four steps away from hatred, that's not enough. The line is true faith displayed by lasting faithfulness. We're judged on the cross, not on a curve. Just because we were closer doesn't mean we're in. Just because we weren't way over here doesn't mean we're in. Being better is not good enough. Now this is where Jesus is going to spend a majority of his story. The other servants, the haters, really brief. Two verses. One in the beginning of the story, one in the end of the story. The faithful servants, we get a little bit more. But the middle is really where the lion's share of Jesus' words are used. Now why is that? I'm going to venture a guess here. I think it's because that's a significant number of people. That's a large amount of people. Which is why Jesus spends that much time talking about it. He gives us more conversation, more dialogue. So let's jump into that third group. Maybe we could call it the middle, right? The middle group. Jesus is going to refer to him as the unfaithful servant. So look at verse 20. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. Terrible investment portfolio. I laid, unless you're buying stock in a handkerchief company or something, I don't know. So I laid it away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you. Ooh. All right. Now we get a little bit more into the... Afraid? Why are you afraid? Why would you fear him? Now, I'm surprised the boldness of this man's story about what he's about to share, about his posture toward the master. Now, Jesus is, this is a fictitious story that Jesus is telling. I think Jesus is revealing the heart of this unfaithful servant. But look at how this servant talks about 
the master, how he talks about the nobleman. He says, I'm a, I was afraid of you. You're a scary guy. I'm in verse 21. Because you are severe. You are a severe man, a strict man. He explains what that means. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. Try that on your quarterly review. Well, boss, uh, you're, you're severe, man. You want to make money on me. Duh. Right? That's the point of this whole business adventure we're doing here. You're going to take what you don't deserve. You're unfair. Now, what do we know about the master so far? Is he unfair? No, this dude's handing out cities as bonuses. Merry Christmas. Here you go. This, is, this guy does not know the master. You think of the language that, that, that um, John used in 1 John. We, we know that we have come to know him. Does this guy know the master? No. He totally misconstrues his character. And it is extravagantly pre presented to us several verses prior. That this is a generous man. Now look at how the master uses this language against this unfaithful servant. I don't think he's saying, yeah, you're right. I am a severe person. I am a shrewd guy. I think what he's going to say is, let's even use your language. If that were true, and I don't think it's true, that's not who I am. I've just displayed that. But even if that were true, your behavior should have been different. Look at what the master says to the unfaithful servant. He says in verse 22, and he said to him, I will condemn you. With your own words, you wicked servant. This is strong language here. Okay, we'll get to that and what, that, what does that mean. You wicked servant. You know that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit, reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put the money in the bank? Now, they didn't have banks like we had. This literally in the Greek means to lay it at the table. It's a table of a money lender. The idea is you didn't even have to work, man. If you just had put it in somebody else's hands who knew how to handle money, that's all I was expecting from you. Right? If you would have just done that, and at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. What is he showing? I'm not expecting you to get a tenfold return, a fivefold return. I'm just expecting you to do something with this thing. You could have done a, a minimal investment and just handed it over to somebody who knew what they were doing. So we already see this master is generous. And he's not so demanding that he expects the same return from everybody. No, but he expects something. He does expect faithfulness. He does expect stewardship. This servant totally misses the master. Totally misses his heart. Because of that, he experiences great loss. Look at the loss he experiences. We're in verse 24. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten. Now, I just wonder if this is interjected. Like, we're really going to give him one, you just gave him 10 cities. Does it really make a difference? And he's like, yeah, do it anyways. Just, just give it to him. I tell you that everyone who has more will be given. 
but to the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So here's the question. What did this guy really lose out on? Like, okay, he's not, he's not a hater over there. He's somehow connected to Jesus. I don't know how he is. I don't know, but there's some sort of affiliation. He's still a servant of the master, but he's proven himself to be unfaithful. He's proven himself not to know the master. And he's shown that in his obedience. His view of the master has affected his life. Because he sees him as severe, he says, no, I'm not going to do those things that you want me to do. I'm going to disregard your demands, and I'm going to misconstrue your character. And so I'm going to live this way. But there's some sort of proximity to Jesus. Now the question is, what does he lose out on? Is it one of those things like, well, he's just going to lose out on some rewards in heaven. Maybe you've heard that language before. Our faith in Jesus Christ makes us right with God. And if we die in this life, we are absent from the body. We are present with the Lord. We're in heaven. And then when God ends all of history and he kind of wraps up kind of this phase of human history, he's going to bring about a new heavens and new earth. And we will dwell with him there. And our bodies will be resurrected and our spirits that are in heaven, in his presence, after our death in this time, will be reunited. There will be glorified bodies and a wonderful experience. Now, in that, there will be judgments given, and those judgments won't be you're either in or you're out. Rather, they'll be you're rewarded. There is a judgment if you're in or you're out, but even those who are in will be rewarded for their obedience they had in their life before. So this is what we call heavenly rewards. Heaven's going to be awesome, but there is a sense that it will be different for each one of us based on the obedience we gave to Christ in our life. So the question is, is this man just missing out on some rewards? Okay, he wasn't a great servant, clearly. Maybe he's just missing out on some rewards in heaven. Okay, I would love to read this passage this way. But that's not the right way to read it. And we get several clues as to how that is not the right way to read it. Jump back a couple verses to verse... Verse, you know what, talk amongst yourselves. (laughs) Verse 23, why then did you not put my money? No, 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 verse 22, that's a better one. I mean, they're all good, but this is the one I want. (laughs) Verse 22, and he said to him, I will condemn you. Does that sound like he's getting into heaven? No. I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. Does that sound like he's right with God? Those are not very favorable terms. Here's the clincher. If you go to Matthew chapter 25, that story I told you that's very similar to this story. Again, there's probably like a core story that Jesus told in several different ways on several different occasions to a point, to make a point to a certain audience. When Jesus retells the story, he talks about an unfaithful servant. And look at how he describes the fate of that unfaithful servant. This is a Matthew chapter 25. So similar character. This is the parable of the talents. And look at how it ends for the unfaithful servant. The one who experienced loss. The one who Luke, he calls wicked. The one that the master says, or the nobleman says, he's condemning. So we're already getting clues. This guy isn't losing out on rewards in heaven. He is losing out on heaven. He's on the outside. I think that's even clearer 
when we see the story told in Matthew chapter 25. Look at verse 29. For to everyone who has, more will be given. Similar language, right? And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. That is like the exact language used for the unfaithful servant in Luke chapter 19. We're talking about the same dude. Look at verse 30. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. and that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Does that sound like a corner of heaven to you? No. What is he losing out on? Heaven. What happens to the unfaithful servant? He's judged. Now is the afterlife in hell different in degree and severity than that of the hater? Maybe. But he's still there. He's still apart from God forever. He's still banished from his presence in a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. God does not grade on a curve. But he grades on what? The cross. This unfaithful servant wasn't faithful, which showed he didn't have true faith. So what he'll experience is judgment. It's not good enough that this guy is just better than the haters. That's not good enough. That won't work. Now we've got to close off the story because Jesus is going to talk about, well, what happens to this group over here? So let's go back to Luke chapter 19, because we can't miss that point. And there's something hard we need to digest in this last verse as Jesus winds up this story. Look at verse 27. So the, the, the unfaithful servant experiences loss. What's taken away, he's condemned as wicked. And then the group of haters says this in verse 27. But as for these enemies of mine who do not want me to reign or want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Parents, I want you to know, so we're covering this in our children's ministry, so they actually have a coloring page. (laughs) Just kidding, okay? You're like, no. Yeah, little Tommy's going to bring home a gift today. Uh, Now, this is hard, right? It's hard to digest. I'm trying to make it a little light, put some humor into it, but this is hard to digest. Here's one of those moments where we are confronted with a very brutal truth. Either one of two things are happening. Either God is clearly overreacting or we severely underestimate the weight of our sin. Because this kind of text, this kind of passage, we're only left with those two options. Jesus is talking about slaughter. I mean, the active opposition of destroying an enemy Man. So either we read this and we say, clearly, God is overreacting. Or we say to ourselves, well, clearly we have underestimated the severity of our sin and rebellion. And the scriptures do not present God as overreacting. They do not present God as ill-tempered. They do not present God as moody. The scriptures speak of God as being slow to anger and to be patient. Not forever patient, not never getting angry, but slow to anger and patient with his judgment. 
I think this is one of those moments where it's kind of those eye-opening moments that we realize, wow, I don't truly know the depth of my own depravity. I truly don't know just how wicked this heart is and what it's capable of. Those who have placed themselves as enemies of God will eventually, if they do not turn in this life, if they do not place faith in Jesus Christ, and that true faith doesn't show itself in lasting faithfulness, they will experience the active opposition of the God of the universe. And that will be justice for their rebellion. And that's heavy, but that's what the scriptures present to us. It's a weighty judgment. It's a weighty judgment. And God's judgment isn't based on a curve. His expectation is the cross. You have faith in me and that faith produces faithfulness. Now, How do we apply that directly to our life right now? I want you to go back to our passage in Luke chapter 19 because I want to show you verse 11. Because I think this is directly applies to us as followers of Jesus Christ. There is a growing kind of sense of, and I don't know which way, which category to put it in. Maybe both categories work. There's a growing sense of eagerness and anxiety. There's a growing sense of eagerness and anxiety over all the conflict that is happening in Israel. And, and Christians and followers of Jesus Christ are starting to search these pages to say, oh man, he's coming. Like Jesus is rounding the bend. It might be tomorrow. It might be before lunch. So let's get our lunch quick. It might be before the Oregon, Oregon State game. Please, Jesus, just wait seven more days. Right? But there's that sense of excitement. That's that sense of like, oh, man, is it, is it going to happen? Is it this moment? Is it this? Isn't it interesting how this happens to be the passage that we're covering during this time? We chose this passage over like a year ago that we would be covering this before any of the conflict already happened. But look, we are in verse 11. You feel that we're in verse, I feel that we're in verse 11. What does verse 11 say? As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. Because they were near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Doesn't that maybe summarize how you feel? So what are we supposed to do? What's the point of the story? Be faithful. Be faithful. Could Jesus come back tomorrow? Sure. Is he? My guess is probably not. Next Wednesday is when we scheduled it. That's when I was available. Just kidding. No, I don't know. Could it happen? Maybe. Could it not happen? Maybe. But here's what I know. I have an assignment. And my job is not to create a calendar for Christ's second coming. Like God's not going to reward me for my predictions. What is he going to reward me for? My faithfulness. My obedience and my devotion. But we can get distracted with forecasting and forget to be faithful. Like we know what to do. Love our neighbors. Disciple our children. Serve our spouses. Share our story. 
Share the gospel. We know what to do. Don't get distracted by trying to figure out how does the calendar fit. Jesus Christ himself told us, you do not know and will not know the day or the hour. Stop trying to find something Jesus told you you never would find. Stop trying to pick out something Jesus told you you're never going to get it. In that hunt, you're going to be distracted. In that find, you're going to waste your time. Your goal is to be faithful. Be faithful while you wait. And be thankful if it happens. And if it doesn't, just continue to be faithful. That's a sign of your true faith. Not predicting, not getting it right. That's not what it is. Be faithful, follower of Jesus Christ. Be faithful. Now, maybe you're here and you're not yet following Jesus. How do you apply this story to your life? I think you have to hear one very clear truth that Jesus communicated. And that is being better is not good enough. God is not going to judge on a curve. He's not. And so feeling this sense of like, well, I'm not way over there on that end. I'm good. No. And again, I think I find it surprising and alarming that Jesus spends the majority of his time talking about the unfaithful servant. Because it leads me to believe, why would Jesus use that much time to talk about that group? It's because I think that's a pretty significant group. Now, I'm not here going to guess the percentage of Americans that fall in that group. I'm not going to do that. I'm trying to get myself in trouble. I'd rather predict the date of Jesus' return than do that. But let's just think about that for a moment. Who would describe Jesus as severe or strict or demanding too much? Is there anybody who has an affiliation, a connection, some sense of close proximity to Jesus, but would say, okay, I'm good with these things, but that thing I'm not good with. Jesus, that's not going to work for me. Again, I'm not talking about perfection. I'm saying like, Jesus, that is too strict. You're demanding too much. You're, you're not generous here. You're not compassionate here. Who would misconstrue the character of Jesus and say, you know what, Jesus, that's out of bounds. Jesus, I'm good with you, but when you start talking about who I sleep with, sorry, Jesus, not going to work for me. How large do you think that group is? Now, I like Jesus. Love your neighbor. That sounds cool. Right? Help the poor. <laughs> that sounds great. Now, here's how I want you to handle yourself sexually. Ooh, no, no, thank you, Jesus. I'm good. That's severe. That's strict. Like how, again, how big do you think, how big do you think that group is? It's pretty big. And there's probably areas in all of our lives where we could say, there are times where I feel like, Jesus, you're just too strict. You're just too severe. Where we all have areas in our life where we have to say, I submit. I submit, Jesus. I don't agree with it. I don't like it. I'm not thrilled about it, but I submit. That's when you know you're following. Jesus doesn't follow you. It's not like, oh, Jesus, you, have, you support my moral ideas. Great. But Jesus, when you don't support my agenda, well, you can go kick rocks, bro. Get out of here. That doesn't work. 
That's an unfaithful servant who does not know the master and is not willing to submit. So I hope that's not where you find yourself, close to Jesus in proximity, but you've drawn some lines around the teachings of Jesus. I don't want you, I don't want you to experience what this servant experienced in the end. To get to the point where you try to hold up your moral resume and say, look, I'm good. You're grading on a curve, right? This thing is a curve, right? Like the, the, the high score of humanity, that's what I'm judged against. No, that's not. You're judged against the cross. Was your faith in the work of Jesus Christ and has that faith produced lasting faithfulness? Not perfection, but a devotion to say, Jesus, it's your way. I'm going to mess that up, but I'm going to get back on track to your way. That is the line. Faithfulness is the line. So I hope you see the commitment that Jesus calls you to. And I want you to know, if you respond to that call of that level of commitment, he will give you the energy. He will give you the power to make that commitment. It seems like a heavy burden now. But if you submit to him, his yoke is easy, he says, and his burden is light. So come to him. And he will help you bear that burden. But if you throw off that yoke at the beginning, or you say, that's not what I want, then the ending will be like the ending here. And I don't want that for you. I don't want that for you. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, we love you and and we're so thankful for the work of your son. His death and resurrection, the forgiveness of our sins. But Father, we, we place our trust and our hope in you. We throw everything, all of our devotion, all of our energy toward you. We wish it could be perfect. We wish it could be clean. But there are times where <laughs> what you've given us, we don't give you the greatest return. But we're still trying to be faithful to follow you. And Father, I pray, I think just for a sober evaluation, something that is fair, That is fair. To realize that you're not grading us on a curve. It's not good enough to just be better. No. We need to see the true standard that we're judged upon. And Jesus Christ, that is your work on the cross. So Father, I pray we find ourselves, everyone in this room, as represented by those faithful servants, those who were trusted by the master to be faithful while they waited for his return. And we pray, Father, as a church, that you would find this room filled with people. And at that day when you decide to return, whether that's next week, next Monday, four Sundays from now, or 40 years from now, that you would find us as faithful servants. And you would say, well done. Look at the reward. Because the reward is huge. It is big. And we cannot wait for that day to be restored to you and to enjoy to enjoy everything you would have for us. Father, keep us committed to that. As we wait, keep us faithful. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.